Hi, and welcome to Infantis Cafe. This is Nikos. Today I'm with Wyatt Finley. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. So we go back until when I was like 15 or something like that, I think. Yeah, you were just uh, a youngster coming along to the uh, team club at the local church in East Kilbride, right? Yeah, yeah, and our friend, uh, mutual friend, um, oh, I've forgotten his name. <laughs> it's been so long ago. Oh, Are you dear. thinking John Dara? No, no, some other guy invited me along, and I didn't, I didn't have a clue what I was getting into, but uh, no, I really enjoyed it actually. It was, kept me, kept mm-hmm. me uh, on the straight and narrow, I guess, more or less. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, was good fun. So, what were you doing? You were a youth leader back then, right? I was a youth leader in the church. Yeah, we had a, a youth fellowship um, on a Sunday evening, and I think it wasn't. I think you know, it was a small church, so I think at one point there was maybe a hundred young people coming at mm-hmm. the peak. And uh, coming from all over Scotland, certainly the central belt of Scotland, um, to attend. It was pretty lively activities and it was a really good time, actually. When I reflect on, uh, I mean, that's a long time ago now, Nikos, isn't it? Yeah, when you, I were reflect a, you were a great youth leader, man. It was, uh, it was good. I think when I reflect on those times, uh, I certainly reflect on them with a lot of warmth in my heart. So yeah, yeah. it was uh, good times in all our lives, I think. Yeah. What was it that motivated you to become a youth leader? Uh, I guess I kind of fell into being a youth leader because um, I was a young person myself at church and there had been people before me as youth leaders. So yeah. it made sense for me. It made sense and they gave me an opportunity to um, uh, share, share some fun and experiences uh, with other young people, you know. And I came from the neighbouring town. I came from Hamilton. Right. Um, so I had uh, kind of migrated towards East Kilbride because I knew some other guys there, like Colin Prentice and uh, Mark Somerville. Right. Um, having been at summer camps with them when I was 14. So um, coming along to the church in East Kilbride, was just, there was a lot of young people there, and it made sense for the older ones, which was myself now. I'm um, just spending time with some of the younger ones. And uh, mm-hmm. it was a great, great opportunity. Were your parents there as well? No, my, my parents were in Hamilton. Right. So right. I, I made, the, I made the, the, the drive up to East Kilbride um, on my own with my sister at one point, and uh, we just yeah. started attending that church. Yeah. It's, it's funny the conversations that I can remember with you. At one time, I remember, I think we were either at Mount Arthur camp, which is sort of youth holiday, and we were in a bus, mm-hmm. and I was talking to you, and you were saying, uh, <laughs> he says, do you know what I think the aliens are? <laughs> and he goes, I think they're angels. I funny how I always remember that, man, you know. Well, you know, we don't know. So. Yeah. And what else do I remember? Um, I remember you coming out after you graduated from uh, some engineering degree and you had this big dissertation, right? And it was like this thick. <laughs> and and, you, and, uh, and he goes, do you know what the point of university is? And I was like, what, what is it? And he says, it's to make other people know that you're smart enough, <laughs> to, you know. <laughs> Yes, there's a lot of truth in that. You've got to demonstrate that you've got ability, right? Yeah. But it'd be good if there was a test that you have the ability about having to go through university to prove it, man. <laughs> yeah, just like a blood test. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like some computer game or something like you play and you say, okay, he's smart enough to do some job, you know. Like... Well, I think, uh, I think we're starting to see that somewhat, isn't it? I mean, you read in the news about Google and maybe some other companies um, who don't even 
you know, they're not they're not bothered about university qualifications anymore. If you can demonstrate like you can code, for example, mm-hmm. then they'll give you a, they'll, they'll give you a shout. So there's a lot of skills developed outside of universities and uh, colleges. And very often we're finding that with technology roadmaps and the way that things are developing in the world today, it's much, much, much faster than a typical three or four year degree. So basically by the time you hit year two, they're having to rewrite some of the textbooks already. Yeah, so I mean, such as the rate. And it's just the way that you learn at university. You learn for these exams and then you want to pass the exams, you dump down all your information and your brain says, okay, dump that information from your memory because like you don't have any need for it anymore and, and you just forget most of the stuff. But when you learn as an adult, you're learning out of interest and because you need it and that, that for me, it seems that knowledge doesn't, doesn't go away as fast as this exam stuff, man. Right, right. So, yeah, but as, so we can't throw it all out, right? So we've got to keep it because it's uh, structure, it's discipline, it's uh, stick-to-it ability. Um, the college in you know it, it's more than just academic uh, and the networking and uh, you know uh, having that uh, nucleus of learning um, is important and I, I rediscovered that later on in life when I did an MBA you know it was an opportunity to um, spend time with people who actually had experience who knew um, management and leadership um, through you know actual experiences in, in the real world and that uh, is highly valuable I think you know when I went, first went to university and did a bachelor's um, it was all rather nobody knew anything about you know the topics that we were getting into which for me was instrumentation and applied uh, physics mm-hmm. and uh, so you were learning from scratch on those particular topics you know um, like um, electronics and things like this. Do you do applied physics? But, uh, yeah, but, um, but when I did the business, uh, you know, the MBA uh, later on, I was starting that from a point of experience and training, having been a manager um, and was, you know, exchanging ideas with people who had a very similar experience, maybe different industries, and uh, that was valuable. And it helped to, I think, the academic study at that point in time helped to underpin um, all the academic textbook stuff. Um, the fees, you know, that the, um, were presented to us, um, as well as the case study examples. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got to say, the MBA was a, a lot of work and a lot of time commitment. And I'm glad I did it before I had kids. Is that free to part time mm-hmm. or free, full time? I did it remote, actually. Man, I, I did the uh, MBA remotely. I'm based in upstate New York, in Albany area. Right, right. And uh, I, I did it at um, the Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen, back home in uh, the UK, right. up in Scotland. So I had to travel across uh, for a leadership week um, and actually spend time at, on campus uh, for one week, which was very good. Uh, but uh, most of it was done Saturday mornings um, using VOIP. And, uh, but it was great. Good time. I'm glad I did it. I had always meant to do it. And uh, in the past, I'd actually been... Uh, Supposed to, I was supposed to start the MBA at Strathclyde University, mm-hmm. and that would be like I think I was accepted onto their course in two thousand five or two thousand six, and just before I was about to start, I actually got sent on assignment to Malaysia, a work assignment, and I thought that that would be more valuable at the time as well, and I got a chance to do some management stuff over there in an operations context, 
Um, so international experience, you know, when opportunities present themselves, you don't say no because I've mm. got this other thing I've got to do. You've got to take it. So I went on assignment and then came back and then other things happened in life. Um, uh, with another assignment, you know, heading to the US. So the timing wasn't right for doing the MBA. Um, and then and anyway, when the timing was right, that's when I committed to do it. There's a lot of people nowadays that are doing MBAs, quite successful people, and you think, well, what do they need to do an MBA for? Why is, why is that? Well, I think there's a few reasons. One is a lot of people do it because they want a piece of paper. They want that certificate on their resume. Um, uh, you know, building their profile, if you like. Um, some people do it for networking opportunity. Um, if they want to like uh, do something different in their career, perhaps, and and so I think selection of the business school becomes important at that point. You know, mm -hmm. I chose Robert Gordon for a few reasons. I chose it because um, I felt as if the value return from it was going to be good, right? Versus studying an MBA in the US, the value return, the ROI on a an MBA in the US is very low. Really? Why um, is that? Well, they're so expensive. And uh, unless you go to Wharton or you know Columbia or one of these other top uh, business schools, Harvard, uh, uh, you know, you're going to be spending a lot of money to yeah. learn the same stuff that you would learn at Robert Gordon. Right. I see. So the so the key difference there is the network. And I wasn't looking for a, a network. I was looking for a different perspective on how to be a leader. Um, I wasn't looking to you know jump into the upper echelons of uh, society and schmooze with. Um, uh, the rich and famous is uh, uh, children. That's not what my um, effort was. Um, nor was I interested in getting into an entrepreneurial spot. Right? I, I don't have a particular interest in starting my own business. Um, I've seen what that looks like. It's uh, not for me. What and, do you like uh, about it? Uh, well, my own family background. Uh, my my father started his own business, you know, many many years ago now, and. Uh, um, I, I think if I was to start my own business, I would have to be very selective in what I was what I was going to be selling, right? So, and uh, I'm already very happy and passionate about the semiconductor industry because that's what I do, mm -hmm. uh, how, how I earn my crust every day. Um, so, yeah, it's not for me. I, I have a different path in life, uh, working in semiconductors. Uh, never say never or anything, right? But uh, I'm quite happy and focused and passionate about what I do already, so no need to change. So so the MBA for me was, uh, you know, a choice in the end, Nikos, to um, just underpin what my experience had been with the academics of it all and the theory. I wasn't interested in other aspects of, uh, you know, schmoozing or networking or, you know, networking to people in other industries. I was quite happy with the industry that I'm in. This price of MBA, something like Oxford and stuff like that, or I've got a friend doing one, and it's like twenty grand or something like that, just for like a part-time MBA or something. It's like, um. right. So you know, you got to be smart with your money and be a good steward of your money. If you're going to get a massive return on it, great. If you're not, don't spend it, and uh, do something different with it. Hmm. And there's other ways to learn the same theory. I mean. The, the internet's a fabulous place to learn the same theory. Um, but, at, you know, the university or college setting is good from a discipline perspective. It forces you to do something, and a lot of people like that.
including myself, I quite like that, knowing that I've got a schedule, I've got deadlines to commit to, because it reflects the real world, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess university for me gave me, gave me the, uh, it taught me to learn and enjoyed me to enjoy learning process, so, I mean, before university I wasn't very uh, academic, but it, after five years I, I sort of liked, I, I gained a hunger for knowledge that developed over, you know, after three or four years. And I kept up that, just learning new things quite a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think, you know, to, uh, obviously this is a podcast and we're calling it the Influencers Cafe, Nikos. And I think to be an influencer, you've got to have credibility. And uh, things that give you credibility are, um, you know, established capabilities, uh, you know, and a, paper, a piece of paper helps to show that. You know, it's a yeah. it's a point of validation that you've got capability. O- otherwise, you're not going to influence very many people, are you? I mean, I I uh, I think uh, o- overall that my degrees helped. It's quite a general degree. It was a biophysics, so I learned a lot about math, statistics, biology, computing, um, electronics. So, yep, give me a very. It gave me the ability to talk with people about many different subjects. Um, yeah, it's important. It stretches your mind, and having your mind stretched is good. Um, on a different, on a different vein, you know, international travel stretches you as well, doesn't it? It gives you new experiences and broadens your horizon. After you finished university, did you do a PhD or you went into industry? Actually, I uh, I did not do a PhD. Um, I thought about it. Uh, there was an opportunity to do a PhD at the National Engineering Lab in East Kilbride, um, which was going to be focused on oil and gas. You know, back then, where industries looking oil and gas industries looking to measure multi-phase flow through the um, oil gas lines in the North Sea. Um, but I opted to get married instead. Mm-hmm. So life's not all about you know chasing the academic dream. It's about making decisions. So you know. I had a girlfriend at the time. We got married, and I, I was keen to get into employment. And uh, a, a good friend and um, you know former mentor of mine, a guy, uh, who, his name was uh, Neil Hood, uh, Professor Neil Hood uh, from Strathclyde Business School, um, gave me some uh, sage wisdom about you know where to go. At that time in Scotland, the semiconductor industry was. Uh, well, it was. It still had a pulse. You know, NEC were there, National Semiconductor, and uh, Motorola, or as it became known as Freescale, um, all, all still had places um, manufacturing in Europe. Um, and uh, I joined National Semiconductor, and the other places closed down actually within a short space of time. And 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 uh, Neil at the time had gave me advice to join National Semiconductor because they had. You know, a very particular uh, niche market, um, manufacturing uh, analog uh, microchips. So I joined there, and I ended up being there for ten years. Yeah. You know, eight eight years based in Greenock, on the west coast of Scotland, um, in a factory that was built in 1978. Um, and then my my last two years at National, I spent um, in Austin, Texas, uh, based in the Semitech Consortium, uh, working with guys from Intel. TSMC, Samsung, and you know all, all the major chip manufacturers. Semiconductor, so, National Semiconductor was Motorola before. 
Yes, yeah. So Mo Motorola um, became Freescale. Right. And they're still, they're still operating today, owned by NXP, which NXP was uh, previously Philips. So as companies consolidate and change in, in the semiconductor industry, you, you've got to try and join the dots to, you know, historically where they were and who they are today. Right. And, and I believe, how did you manage to get from, we started your job at processing year was it 2000 and then you yeah. after four years you, you got the scottish engineer of the year that's right amazing yeah, yeah. so um, how did you pull that one off so i think uh national semiconductor as i said had been around since 1978 on site in greenock in different forms and fashions and uh, when i joined in 2000 as a graduate there was uh, another five graduates were hired so there was six in total and they had not had a graduate intake for a few years um, because of the pains. Um, around 1997, there had been a big layoff um, with, uh, with National Semiconductor guys ended up going all over the world. And so we were the first intake, and I think you know after a period of time, um, we were fresh eyes. I think the average length of service with folks before we joined would be like 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. You've got us graduates turning up on site and having that fresh uh, fresh pair of eyes looking at things that typically hadn't been looked at because the workforce was maybe a little stretched um, or we got to spend more time looking at greater detail of particular things um, it actually made a difference you know and uh, so I had identified some improvement opportunities um, in the in the factory and had uh, you know evaluated opportunities, validated, and then executed deployment and uh, saved a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, my boss um, decided to, you know, it's one of these uh, Scottish engineering, is like a Scottish engineering, they do uh, lobbying, um, very effective, everybody that's in manufacturing is a member of it in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have like their black tie awards dinner every year and they do, they do a lot of activities on behalf of uh, engineering and manufacturing in Scotland and uh, they had this uh, awards, um, a list of awards that they would give out every year and one of them was uh, the Young Engineer of the Year which was open to engineers under the age of 35 and so back then I wasn't even 30 um, and uh, I was 27 I think and 26, 27. And my boss um, applied, you know, put down the details of the projects that I've been involved in. And then the folks at Scottish Engineering, it was uh, Dr. Peter Hughes, who was the chief executive at the time. Him and a team came out to uh, our factory in Greenock. And uh, I gave them a tour around the place and gave them the details, in-depth details of the project. A few months later, they announced the winner, and it was me. Nice. And, uh, so, <coughs> so I was... I wasn't expecting to win, but um, because there was other stiff competition, um, so it was a really nice surprise, and I got to go and uh, to the awards dinner, and uh, they gave me a check for a thousand pounds at the time, and uh, a nice little trophy that I got to keep. So it was uh, it was really nice, and from a personal perspective, it was quite special, Nikos, because at that time, uh, my father was actually dying uh, with colorectal cancer. So in the final stages of his life, he got to see something that, you know, for all of us as a family was maybe um, perhaps quite special. So I, that's an event that I like to I like to remember fondly because of uh, you know 
the time I got to spend with my father, and he was very proud, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think a year later, uh, two years, two years later, it passed. But um, yeah, so Scottish Engineer of the Year, huh? Nice. That opened um, up some opportunities for you, I guess. After that, yeah, it did. And actually, uh, external and internal to the National Semiconductor, I was offered um, a job in Inverness at a company, and uh, it just wasn't right at the time. Um, but uh, I got an internal promotion, if you like, and was moved from engineering into an operations manager role, um, working shift, granted, but that's what happens. That's the semiconductor uh, uh, modus operandi, and uh, it was a great experience. I did that role for three years managing people on a production shift. And, uh, you know, these were small experiences that helped to develop my career and, and where I am today, you know. Uh, I think managing people, and especially on the west coast of Scotland, is a challenge. And uh, I don't think you ever become perfect at, at people management, but you get better over time and with experience. And, uh, you know, I think working with people, developing relationships, uh, that's that was where I learned how to do that. And uh, um, establishing relationships is a fundamental aspect of it, you know. You can't, you can't just... Uh, uh, expect things to happen or people to go the extra mile for you if you don't establish, you know, good relationships with folks. So that's where I really learned all that. And, you know, as, as I reflect, I remember everybody that worked for me and uh, worked in the team. And uh, and I remember them all very, you know, I use the word fondly, but I do remember them all fondly because they've all contributed to where I am today um, in my career and life. And, uh, you know, and so I've got... Uh, a debt of gratitude to them all, actually. Mm-hmm. So you're now at Global Foundries? Yeah, so Global Foundries is a contract manufacturer. We are a foundry, and uh, we compete in the foundry space in the semiconductor industry. So we make contract chips for companies like uh, Qualcomm, Apple, Google, you know, anybody, anybody that wants uh, microchips manufactured for them, we manufacture them. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of your devices, handsets, and uh, home assistants, we manufacture microchips for that. And as a company, you know, across all our sites, uh, we manufacture microchips for the automotive industry. You name it, military, everything. So a very broad uh, customer portfolio beyond the names, household names that people would be familiar 12, with. 12,000 employees. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a reasonable-sized company. We're not the biggest company in the semiconductor industry, but you know we've got a very good te- technical portfolio of what we can provide, and so that's where I'm based. And I'm, I'm in the flagship factory, which is uh, based in upstate New York. It's our most advanced uh, technically, um, and uh, yeah, big workforce, lot going on. Must be fun. To, it must be like a. You get paid to have fun in a factory and play around with all these very expensive gadgets, man. I can imagine. Well, so so you gotta be careful there because we don't we don't play around <laughs> the, uh, the 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 com- the complexity of the process um, determines that we must have a major focus on control and uh, you know process control, equipment control. Uh, major, major, and so you know this is one of the most advanced factories in the world currently, and uh, you know 
it's difficult to compare semiconductor manufacturing to the other types of manufacturing that are out there because we are so complex and, and so advanced in our automation and, uh, and, and types of control that we have to deploy around equipment, even to the extent of how you do maintenance on uh, the equipment has to be very, very controlled. So, um, so yeah, that, that's the biggest focus. And having a culture, a working environment culture where everybody's on the same page, where we have to manage changes, improvements very, very carefully. Um, because one, one mistake or one, you know, error, uh, you know, can be very, very costly in the manufacturing um, and in the delivery and supply of some of our major customers. So we, we got to be super careful. I did my, my work experience in Motorola and East Kilbride, and I can remember getting t taken around the fabs, and I used to enjoy putting all this, like, white stuff, like white clothing and stuff like that. I guess you have to do that as well. Yeah, yeah. Whenever you go into the clean room environment, you have to wear um, your clean room suit, you know, face mask, hairnet, yeah. two-layer gloves, and uh, it's all about protecting the environment from uh, particles. Yeah. You know, and these particles are, are at a molecular level. So we're trying to control processes at a, you know, molecular atomic level these days. Mm -hmm. Very difficult, challenging. Um, and so, you know, the less people in the clean room, the better, because people take in contamination. So you only go in the clean room if you really have to go in. I remember them saying like this air is like 10,000 times cleaner than the air outside or something like that and that's kind of, that's hard to do in Scotland, the air's pretty clean. Uh, right, right. It's, it's been kind of scary as well because you go in the, these clean rooms and you've got all these like showers there that if you get sprayed with acid, you go and wash the acid, acid off. Right, you know? right. So the, the safety aspect of working in a semiconductor fab is massive and it's the number one priority for everybody on site. We had something called Novellus machines or something like that. They were like nine pound, yeah. nine million each or something. Yeah, that... yeah. So the cost of equipment now, that, that nine, nine million is a drop in the ocean compared to the cost of equipment now. I think it's publicized that the factory here, <laughs> excuse me, in upstate New York is like billions, you know, 15 billion. And actually, Global Foundry's fab in New York is this. Now, think about this. New York is Wall Street and all this stuff going on. The factory in New York is the single biggest inward investment in the state of New York ever. Inward from who? From who? From the United Arab Emirates. And they built the whole thing, or they what percentage? Um, well, it's in a partnership with New York State. Right. So typically speaking, no one's building factories to this level now without partnership with uh, you know government, either right. federal or, or state governments. And how much money did, 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 they, did they put in? Well, they put in, uh, well, I don't know what the final number was from uh, um, uh, United Arab Emirates, but uh, New York State obviously put in a very uh, good um, tax incentive uh, package. Because mm -hmm. they're competing at a, you know, a worldwide stage to get the factories built and bring jobs in for uh, the population of the state, you know. So that's what it's aren't the Apple bringing the Aren't Apple bringing some stuff back to the States for your, your industry? Well, there's a lot of discussion about bringing stuff back and, and all that, but the US, um, obviously, with a well-publicized trade war with China, um, some of the key aspects of that trade war are around uh, technological capability and control, such as 5G. 
Yeah. And as uh, one, ex you know, infrastructure build out and uh, all that good stuff. So yeah, that's well publicised. Um, whether or not jobs come back, that's a different thing. But uh, certainly trying to control those markets. Um, is obviously a primary aim of the current federal government. Mm -hmm. Are you? Do you know much about five G? Yeah, I mean we are in uh, our, our company is in a pole position to supply the products for five G, and mm -hmm. uh, we have all the we have probably the best placed um, RF technology in the in the market. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and a long legacy of having the capability to make RF um, components that go into all your uh, telecommunications networks um, uh, with low power functionality. So, you know, we have um, a fully depleted silicon on insulator or FDSOI technology, which is perfectly placed to be uh, the low power um, platform for, you know, mobile devices, but really any device um, because it's also a low cost uh, manufacturing process, so we're poised to um, be really, you know, a market a leader in the whole five G um, RF play. Mm. It, this, do you think there needs to be more research for five G? Because a lot of people are worried about so potential health um, implications. I mean, there's there's two factors with five G. The the um I, I think there's there's need for more transmitters. But the transmitters don't have to be as powerful because um, there's there's more of them. Instead of having a big transmitter, you have a smaller one for shorter distance. Well, well you see, the, the size of the transmitters today and the towers are humongous. And five G, you don't need that. They're much smaller. You know, shoebox size, if you like. And uh, so the infrastructure can be hidden away more easily. However, um, the wavelengths a little different, right? So you've heard about the challenges of having 5G inside your house or inside a room, for example. It's yeah. not very practical, um, but it's brilliant for outside. So, you know, 5, 5G will be better than 4G. There's no question. Um, it'll be much faster. Um, but, uh, you know, like every new wave of technology, it comes with challenges. We have to go look at the challenges and overcome them, you know, but that's how you make progress, right? But I think some of the health concerns are maybe a bit uh, overzealous. Um, but 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 we need we need the people who have the health concerns to stand up and and say, so that we can spend time um, and money looking at the problems, right? And if they are genuine problems, fix them mm -hmm. um, or deal with them. So we look at it's. I think five G's slightly shorter wavelength than microwave radiation from the microwave. Microwave can heat molecules up because it's um, can pass through layers and excite water molecules because it's a resonant frequency. But maybe I don't know. Does 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 five G can five D do the same thing? Maybe because it doesn't pass through the skin. Or I, I don't know. I don't know. So um, I, I, to be honest with you, I, I spend less time worrying about um, those things. My my focus is all on how you manufacture it. Yeah, with, uh, yeah. Low, low variability and high quality for uh, Global Foundries customers. I like to have people on both camps on that. I'm going to try and find some 5G researchers and also global warming as well. I want to have, well, I had I get that guy on last night that I recorded, um, Hugh Ross. And uh, he, he's got, a, have you heard of Hugh Ross? Uh, is he the astrophysicist? Yeah, yeah. That was a fascinating little hour. 
and that'll be uploaded. That'll be before this episode. <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, you've 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 had a busy career, and um, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but you've also had some health challenges. You've yet managed to to sort of go through it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, more than happy to talk about my health challenges, Nikos. Yeah. I mean, there's, I, I've had uh, ulcerative colitis for 15 years, and yeah. uh, I went through all the uh, medical options, uh, drug options, biologic drugs. I was on, you know, Remicade, Intivio, um, Zeljans, and more recently, Stellara. And uh, I think I only had a period of uh, remission for three years with um, Intivio. These are all like uh, intravenous, uh, you know, injectables. Yeah. So, um, but uh, my disease was very uh, severe. So I've, uh, for 15 years, struggled to really be in control of symptoms and really struggled a lot uh, through the past 15 years, you know, flying, security lines in airports, um, working in a clean room, I'm traveling, going on vacation, I've had to cancel vacations, you know, so it's a disaster. Um, I'm in and out of hospital for emergency treatment, spending a week at a time on IV steroids, polymedrol. Um, so it got to the stage where there was no more medical options and, and drug options for me, so I had to have the surgery. And you know, at the point of deciding what surgery to get, because there's really two options. One is to have a total proctocolectomy and terminal ileum which is uh, having a bag, you know, an ileostomy. And, uh, or you could uh, select to have a J-pouch, which is what uh, Darren Fletcher, the Manche former Manchester United player, had done when he was uh, diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And uh, uh, I, I opted for the bag, actually, and uh, I've had uh, recently, nine weeks ago, um, had the, the surgery done, and now back at work and getting back on my feet. And I've got to say, this is the best I've felt in years. Really? Um, I, I, I have no ulcerative colitis symptoms. Um, but remember, I've had uh, my colon removed, my rectum removed, and my anus removed. So um, I basically uh, have a, an ostomy. That's how I go to the loo now. And, uh, but having the, having the bag, if you like, <clears throat> you know, everybody's like, oh, no, I don't want that. That's, that sounds disgusting. Well, I had 15 years to think about having it done because I knew it could be a, you know, a, a likely outcome of the disease. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, and it has been the outcome of the disease. I fought it for a long time. I didn't, I didn't want the surgery, you know. Uh, but in the end, I was actually knocking on the surgeon's door asking for him to do the surgery quickly yeah. because it was impacting my life so much. It was impacting my job. Um, there were certain things I couldn't do. I was on all these steroids, very foggy-minded. I mean, prednisone makes you into a different person. So I don't know anything about drugs like that. I mean, I don't. all these names don't mean anything to me. All I know is there's one called Adderall, which Americans seem to like. Well, um, there might be somebody listening to the podcast, uh, Nikos, who actually has ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease and can relate and would be very familiar with uh, some of these drug names that I've mentioned. Yeah. Um would be another one, an immunosuppressant that I've been on in the past. But ultimately, the drugs, for me, have never fully controlled, apart from a three-year period with Intivio, um, where I eventually built antibodies, uh, because that's what happens. The biological drugs work for a period of time, 
your body eventually rejects them because the molecules are larger than the filtering of your immune system and your body rejects them, you get side effects, they just stop working um, and that's what happened to me. So in the end, of my, my disease progressed faster than the drugs could control the illness and so in the end I burned through them all and then I had to have my colon out. So, and it's pretty major surgery, um, I won't lie, uh, the pain management the day after uh, two days after, they struggled to get it with morphine, and so they had to give me laudanum. But uh, you know, within within three or four days, pain was okay. You know, Tylenol was enough, mm -hmm. actually. And I got home four or five days later, and then I'm just just on the mend, and uh, I'm doing really well. So my skin is the best it's looked since I was 27, <laughs> and I'm 42 now, right? So it's uh. You know, and you can survive on, I think, um, you don't need your colon to survive from an absorption, nutrient absorption perspective. 80% um, of your absorption is done in your ileum. You, you know, all, all your small, small intestine. Small intestine, small intestine, yeah. So, so I just got to increase my water intake now and, you know, manage having an appliance stuck on my abdomen. But as I say to you, it's very easy. I use, I use a product called a stealth belt. You can buy them online. They're a hundred dollars online, and it's it's, a, it's almost like a back support type of belt, you know, mm -hmm. like a hernia belt. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just the the little bag just tucks inside it. Everything's above my belt line, so I can tuck in my shirt. And unless you knew that I had one, you would have no idea. Yeah. Right. You walk past me in the street, you have no idea that I have an ostomy. Yeah. So, so you only know if I tell you. Or if you've, you know, if I've described it. Well, every, everyone in a sense carries a bag. Just your bag is outside of the skin. Other people's bags inside their tummy. So. Yeah, and, and there's a fun, there's a funny observation in all of this actually. So with colitis, I spent a, a terrible amount of time in the toilet, right? And uh, you know, even when I was doing well with the colitis, I'd still be four or five times in a loo every day, versus twenty times when I was really bad. And, uh, and, you know, it's not straightforward. Most of it's internal bleeding and blood loss rather than, you know, everybody thinks it's poo. It's not. It's uh, other stuff that comes out because your colon's inflamed and ulcerated. So um, so now I spend less time in a loo than I did when I was normal. You yeah. know, and I never sit down because I don't need to sit down anymore. I'm emptying a pouch on the front of my abdomen. I crouch down a little. Yeah. I let stuff out. And that's it. So I, ho I hope this isn't too much information for your podcast, Nico. No, I mean, I, I, the only reason I asked because I remember you, you posted on Facebook the details of what you suffered, and um, I was like, I, I couldn't cope with a tenth of that. And uh, But yeah, you managed to pull off this really successful career, and it's quite amazing, actually. Right, I think um, I, I did it, you know, one phrase I learned early on with colitis, and I did struggle for the first three or four years with it, and, and maintaining... Uh, work function, if you like, um, and I was always very concerned in the beginning because I had read that you know a disease like this would impact your career. Um, but the amount of energy and focus and micromanagement of my symptoms—it was a massive effort, Nikos, and a lot of people possibly wouldn't have been able to do it. And so I went to ridiculous levels to. Um, you know, try and not let the illness defeat me. Um, but I think I'd also, I was maybe a little fortunate that I got to the stage in, in my career where I had 
you know, I wasn't just a graduate anymore. I kind of kind of established myself a wee bit more um, with a trajectory. So, and then I had uh, opportunities for assignments where I didn't need, I did not need to work inside a clean room. So, <coughs> more like a desk job idea. So that helped, you know. <coughs> Excuse me. So, that's um, yeah, a lot of kids I know. Uh, it's impacting their education if they're diagnosed young at school or in college. Yeah. And uh, knowing what I know now, I should have had the surgery done 10 years ago. It saved me a lot of hassle. Because having the bag's easy. It's, it's, you know, sure, you got to go through the ordeal of a surgery. But having yeah, the bag's super, super I remember, easy. I remember meeting you um, about, oh, time goes about 13 years ago, and you were saying that Negi had says, you know, this might be an option. You are not happy about it at all. Um, right. But, um, then, then at the time, you... no, no, nobody wants a bag if you yeah. don't need one. Yeah. But, but at the point of when you need one and realizing that you need one, you got to go get it done, because with all the drugs not working anymore, because uh, my my future life was going to be a disaster. Mm -hmm. You know, confined to the house or or very close to a restroom all the time. It made jumping in the car and you know going a five-minute journey very difficult because you're always looking for a restroom. Um, and I could write a book on the amount of times where I've not made it to the restroom. So you can only imagine that you know, and to live to live with a condition that's like that, um, debilitating. I think would be the best way to describe it. I mean, you think about it; it's a similar disease to asthma. But asthma, uh, you struggle to breathe. It's all upper respiratory. You need steroid inhalers to control it. Well, it's a similar hollow organ, but only it's you know it's, it's the waste elimination system for your body, and it's, it's just a very 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 difficult to control. Um, yeah. So in the end, I got the I got the surgery, and interestingly enough, everybody I've spoken to that's had the surgery says that they do not regret it. Mm -hmm. So that tells you a lot, right? Mm -hmm. The surgery is good. But it's just a big decision to go get it done. But I think people need more support in making these types of decisions. Um, do, do they know what causes the, the disease? Like that? No. It just happens? Uh, well, they believe that there's some environmental factors. There could be uh, genetic mutation factors. Um, but ultimately, they don't know. And uh, uh, there's a lot of research on the microbiome. Um, so both you know, for all the all the bugs that live in your gut as well as the fungus. And, and there's some interesting things here, right? So since the dawn of antibiotics, there's been tremendous study into the microbiome and all the different bacteria that, that live in there. And, you know, the supermarkets have got everybody uh, drinking, um, you know, uh, special yogurt with increased strains of bacteria yeah. in, uh, in your digestive health. But nobody's giving you any more fungus, and uh, and that's a problem because the fungus actually lives in a system with all the bacteria that's in your gut. So we're all loading up on all this good bacteria, but we're not loading up on the good fungus. And you're basically, um, you know, taking one without the other. And what's happening is our systems are not well characterized; they're not well understood. Uh, but we're only treating one aspect of it and not the other one. Mm -hmm. That strikes me as being a big problem. Um, and, and, and maybe a little uh, premature. Um, so we need more work done to understand the, the role of fungus in the gut. Um, and to give you an idea, 
you think about how many different antibiotics you can get. You know, there's so many strains out there. All these drugs that you can get, uh, conventional drugs and therapies for, um, you know, um, all these antibiotics. And there are three major um, fungus drugs. Three. So it's an area of uh, research that's desperate and, uh, and, and we need to get on top of as well. There was one recent um, disaster. Uh, I would say medical emergency, if you like, in New York, actually, um, where um, a chap in one of, the, one of the hospitals down in the city died of a fungus problem. Mm -hmm. right? so, so this is, a, you know, perhaps a, a new dawn or a new horizon for medical research that we need to spend more, um, more money on because there's not been enough done. But I think uh, autoimmune problems of which colitis and Crohn's are, labeled as today, um, you know, are not fully understood yet either. So there's different biological um, things going on in the human body um, that are not well understood. You know, one, one example that I was reading about recently is uh, tuft cells. So the tuft cell is a receptor cell that is sitting in all the whole organs that's controlled by the medulla. And that helps in the, it's like part of a uh, fault detection system, if you like, for hollow organs. Uh, they have these cells in the colon, in the um, in, in uh, your upper respiratory system, and uh, they they determine whether you have an invader, a toxin, or whatever else parasite in your gut, and uh, they send the information back to the medulla. The medulla then, so you've got this complexity, and they've got no idea how it works, and clearly. Mm -hmm the human body can break as well, right? So when you throw that into the mix, things go haywire, and we call this autoimmune condition. So and then, we, then we just treat the symptoms. We don't actually, you know, put a mechanic in there to actually uh, fix the thing that's wrong. Like if your medulla breaks, the medulla is the, you know, the CPU for your uh, immune system, right? And um, if, that, if you have a, a bad medulla, how do you fix that? You don't. That's right? a part of your you brain, just, is that... Is that the... Yeah, that's your control system for yeah. how your body responds to things. You know, signals come back and forward. To be honest, we've got a half idea about how these things work, and I'm not a medical guy, right? If anything, I'm a, a manufacturing technologist and semiconductors, very specific focus. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm not the expert in any of this, but what we need is more money spent on the research of these diseases, um, of which um, MS is one, Parkinson's, all all these diseases, right? So it's not just about DNA mutation; it's about environmental factors too. Mm -hmm. And we know that because we see the high instances of Crohn's and colitis in developed nations. We don't see it in developing nations or in the third world. So there's a problem with how the West is living um, versus, uh, you know, people in other parts of the world. Is this a developed world disease that your people are seeing this in mostly? Yeah. Yeah, the statistical significance would tell us that. Really, huh? That's scary. Yeah. So what advice would you give to urban dwellers like myself to, to avoid getting something like this? Well, processed foods and glyphosate have been used to uh, destroy uh, bugs and control crops. So there's already um, uh, some evidence that would suggest that glyphosate is a major contributor to autoimmune problems. And, uh, and so that is, uh, you know, impacting the food chain. So you are what you eat. And, uh, you know, that's uh, one of the 
I think the big things that we've got to go and address, and mm. unfortunately, um, you know, think about how the West gets its food. Where do we get all, all our fresh tomatoes from if it's not from some bug sprayed field or something? Maybe we should start more aquaponics where we can, you know, remove these uh, pests. Um, it, it goes down, it's a broad focus, even down to how we do agriculture and how we maintain fields and, uh, you know, protecting soils. It's all part of the wider view of how we perhaps solve some of these problems. But I do think before we jump straight to that conclusion that we need more evidence first. You know, we've got some data that might suggest that these are issues. Now we need to go and validate with more data and, and particular case studies and design of experiments to validate that these are actual uh, causes. And then we've got to work with business to, uh, to, to, um, to solve that problem because a huge part of uh, you know the global economy is dependent on agriculture and how their, their farming methods today is dependent on the supermarket and how we process foods and buy foods. So you, can, you can't do one without the other. And obviously the pharmaceutical industry are, are making an absolute fortune from treating symptoms. So it's perhaps not in their big business interest to uh, solve this problem. Um, so that needs to be segregated out and we focus on the agriculture business and, and get partnerships with those guys to improve. Um, but we need more data. So we can't just say, yeah, this is causing it, you know, glyphosate's causing it. Can't say that until there's more evidence. How do you find the healthcare system in the States versus the NHS? Uh, that's a great question. So I have spent more time in the healthcare system under emergency and obviously elective surgery recently. Um, I spent time in hospital a few times actually when I was in the UK living in Scotland. And I've got to say, when I consider the nurses and the doctors and the surgeons, they are all on both sides of the Atlantic doing their utmost and best to provide top level care. Mm -hmm. So the, the personal motivation of the staff, the medical staff is excellent on both sides of the Atlantic. The, the access um, readiness, you know, if I, I need to go get treatment, it's similar, but I would say I got faster treatment in the US. However, um, when I needed an appointment for my colitis, you know, I had a chronic condition, I would get an appointment pretty fast in, in Scotland as well. Mm -hmm. So um, the, my, the problem with my disease was that my disease could not be controlled, which is a different problem. Right, some people get respite, and so when I answer that question, I have to be objective. I can't say, well, I really struggled in Scotland, or you know, for the first part of my, my life in the U.S. because, you know, they couldn't control it. Blaming them, it's not their fault. Like, I had a disease that was not controllable, so I think I've received excellent care. But I have to say, the insurance system over here is a black hole. It's a nightmare. Um, I had an insurance company call me the day after my surgery when I'm on laudanum to confirm that I'd had the surgery. Um, you know, things like this. The, the US system is a shambles, and uh, the NHS system's much more streamlined for that. But obviously, there's less checks and marks over the spending in the NHS, and they're trying their best to work within their budgets, which is a very difficult thing to do. How the NHS is the most efficient healthcare system in the world? It could be, it could be, but I think there's a difference between efficiency and, you know, um, well, I'll give you an example, right? 
in the semiconductor industry. I'm obviously very familiar with it. Back in the 70s and 80s, the industry was basically printing money. Nobody really cared about costs. Nobody was managing costs. And then the 90s and the thousands came where cost became more of an issue. And now cost is absolutely paramount. Everybody's managing cost in the factories globally. And I've spent a lot of time benchmarking fabs all over the world. This is a global phenomenon. Cost is king. And uh, you've got to control it. I think the NHS ran into that, you know, never really controlling costs, just always had this pipeline of money coming from the government. And then somebody said, well, we've got to control the costs of this because it's escalating, we've got an aging population, whatever have you, right? And uh, they'll never get it right. That's the problem. But there has to be a budget that you operate within. And typically speaking, you know, uh, hospitals, I'm sure now, will be run by the finance team and not the medical team. So that's the, the constraint there. <clears throat> many, like many factories, are controlled by the finance guy and not the engineers or the manufacturing and operations guys, right? So they have to work together as a team. Now, um, that's a challenge, right? And they've got to do it with data. But, you know, if you have a local population that's growing or doesn't grow organically but explodes because of particular immigration to an area or movement of people, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't jump to say immigration or just say movement of people, um, then it's a problem um, because they're not able to grow uh, organically and control their costs. Their costs just go bananas and, and you can't control that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a major problem. Um, but that in comparison to the insurance shambles that we have here in the United States, um, I, I would say somewhere in the middle there's got to be a happy medium, right? Yeah. Um, now, personally speaking, you do not want the American system in the UK. Yeah. That's, a That's a disaster waiting to happen right there because yeah. the cost will all go up. So in the, in the US, um, my taxation does not go to US healthcare. My company provide me with insurance and I pay a contribution to that from, uh, from my wages, if you like, or my salary, right? Mm -hmm. If you take that money to the side, and call it tax, it works out about the same. So if I had to lump that into the taxation bucket, I'm pretty much paying the same percentage in tax that I did in the UK. I see. That's the, that's the bottom line. So it's really a question of who controls the, the money. Is it the government or is it the insurance company? Now, if you uh, rebrand the insurance company in America and call it the finance guys in the NHS, you, you're really splitting hairs now. So it's really a question of who controls the money. And, uh, you know, the U.S. is a small government <coughs> versus a large government model, you know, socialist model more than the U.K. Mm. <coughs> but, you know, with regards to healthcare, would I have, would I have any um, access restrictions to colitis medication in the U.K.? No. Um, did living in the U.S. give me more access to drugs? No. Um, could I got my surgery done any faster in the in the in the US? Maybe just a wee bit faster, but not that much. Mm -hmm. Is it worth paying the extra money in insurance? I don't think so. Have I had any problems in? Uh, I've been, um, uh, you know, taken to the emergency room several times. You're still waiting the same length of time as you would do in uh, in, in in the hospital, like uh, in Scotland. And I wouldn't name. I've been in two of them. I, mm -hmm. I wouldn't name them, but um, similar times, waiting times. 
between uh, New York State and, uh, and Scotland and my experience as a patient. And, uh, and I would say um, uh, that uh, there is one uh, thing that was a wee bit different here in the US compared to the UK, which is good, which we should think about you know, more of in the UK, is that local to where we live here, we have uh, what's known as an emergent uh, care facility. It's like a halfway house emergency room without all the full stuff. Mm -hmm. But it has the advanced imaging, so they have a CT scanner, they have X-ray, MRI, all that stuff locally. Oh, that's, and that's they, impressive. And they, can, and they can do some treatment. You know, if you get stitches, they can do stitches. So some of the basic stuff, but if you have a heart attack or if you have, they got to take you to the big hospital, right? Because that's where all that stuff's going to look after you. And it would be a helicopter trip or a, a, a fast ambulance from the emergent care to uh, the big hospital. So the big hospital for us is in Albany, St. Peter's and Albany Medical Center, uh, two big hospitals down in Albany. Whereas locally, we're about 25 miles north, there's an emergent care center that we can go to. And, uh, you know, and I can be taken, um, you know, maximum waiting time an hour. So it's uh, fantastic. So something like that in the UK might be of interest, uh, something that they should explore. Where not everything has to be in a major hospital, mm -hmm. maybe it can be done in a downsized emergent uh, healthcare facility that has some scanning, um, some diagnostics capability, right? You're certainly in a position to advise the UK government or, or American government on this stuff because you've experienced so many years, almost 10 years in each, well, seven in each, seven in each healthcare systems. So you've got a unique perspective. Yeah, I've definitely experienced both firsthand, emergency and elective, and uh, you know. But there's not, and that's the point I'm making. There's not a major difference between both the systems when it comes to the care and attention given to you. Mm -hmm. So, and they have the problems here. Nurses are striking in unions, and you know all that sort of stuff happens here as well. Um, you just don't really hear about that in the UK. Um, but money talks. So at the end of the day, whether it's here or in the UK, money talks. Mm -hmm. But there has to be business budget for how we manage um, medical facilities. Um, and those costs can't, cannot be allowed to escalate. They have to be controlled. Here, it's, a, it's more business focused with insurance companies, you know. Whereas in uh, the UK, it's government controlled and the politics suffer if it's not controlled well. So, mm -hmm. you know, I can see tends to be a political football in the UK where here it's not. Here it's just uh, business and that's it. But everybody in the UK is covered. They're not covered here. So if you don't have insurance in this country, it's a problem, right? Yeah. Especially if you have a heart condition or if you have a disease like cancer, you're bankrupt. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my my surgery, um, probably all in, just cost around seventy or $80,000 just to give you an idea. So if you don't have insurance in this country, you're going to be reliant on a, on a, charity, a charity paying for it or the hospital fund um, yeah. and paying for it if you're lucky. So it's, you know, this is where we're at. Yeah. So but I can see, I can see health, health coverage in the UK uh, getting sharper, getting more focused, being managed. There's opportunities to manage it all better. Uh, and I don't think they've uh, got it right yet, so perhaps they'll be able to do it one day. Okay. 
All right. Um, boy, I hear your, your children are wanting attention there. And um, we'll definitely <laughs> like to have you on the other podcast to talk tech, you know, especially tech around uh, processors and, and manometers and all that kind of stuff, because that'll be quite interesting for my, my web developer audience, because we're always interested in performance of computers and where it's going. Okay. So you're welcome to come on there. Yeah, and, happy. Cool, man. So um, anything else you want to share with our audience on the um, Infantos Cafe? Not today. Not today, but thanks for having me on, Nicholas. Uh, um, I've never been on a podcast before, so there's always a first time for doing something in life. And yeah. uh, I, hope, I hope that our discussion that we've had today, uh, or maybe our ramblings, um, is interesting to somebody, you know. And, uh, if somebody wants to reach out to you for you know advice on whatever we've talked about, you know whether it's semiconductors or health issues or insurance for healthcare and stuff, how would the people get in touch with you? Uh, they can contact you. Okay. <laughs> Fair and, enough. Uh, and, and, uh, and yeah, if somebody wants to chat about uh, colitis or health condition, anything like that, I'd be more than happy to share my experience in one to one. Awesome. Okay, Boyd, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you, my listeners. That was Boyd Finlay, my uh, my youth leader <laughs> when I was a teenager. And now he's uh, he's continuing to do us all proud in what he's doing over in the States. Having the flag for Scotland. And, uh... <laughs> all right. Off air. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>